Miracy. So I felt like we could have talked for hours with him about applications of behavioral science to his course. But I guess let's start with the biggest thing that he really emphasized, which was the importance of getting people to apply his techniques to take action. Hello, and welcome to Course Lab, the show that teaches course creators like you how to make better online courses. I'm Danny Eaney, the founder and CEO of Miracy, and I'm here with my co-host, Abe Crystal, the co-founder of Rizuku. Hey, Danny. In each episode of Course Lab, we showcase a course and course creator who is doing something really interesting with their online course. Today, we're fortunate to welcome behavioral scientist Dr. John Austin. His online course teaches people how to foster change in their workspaces through the use of behavioral science. Hey, John, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's start at just 30,000 feet. Who are you? What do you do? How did you come to be doing it? And what brought you eventually to online courses? Mm, Great questions. Uh, Well, first, my background is in behavioral science, as you said in the intro. I got my PhD and master's degree and PhD at Florida State University 30 years ago. And that's pretty much when I started learning about behavior, it felt like. After I had my PhD, you know, you graduate and you think you know everything, and then you realize you know nothing because the world is so vast when it comes to this topic. After I got my PhD, I started as a university professor. I was a university professor for 15 years and published, I don't know, 100 papers that no one will ever read in scientific journals because they're written in another language, right? They're written in academic ease or scholarese and not English. And so partway through that time, I realized that I wanted to influence people and teach people and help people on a wider scale. And so that required doing things differently than just teaching them face-to-face and traveling around the world and, and, uh, and speaking as I was. And so I started to explore teaching online. Cool. And so that has led to the course that you offer today, the Behavioral Safety Leadership Academy. Tell us about that. Who is that for? When they find you, when they sign up, what do they pay? How does it work? What do they experience? Give us the whole story. Okay. Um, Well, the Behavioral Safety Leadership Academy really is for people who work in environments that require occupational safety. And so uh, they they also require psychological safety. But this particular course is aimed at really physical safety. And so it's for operations leaders, managers, executives, even frontline supervisors in people who tend to take it or or tend to be in manufacturing or construction setting. The course is a three-month course. There is a series of weekly assignments or lessons that are planned into kind of a weekly structure. I offer it with coaching, live coaching, and without live coaching, kind of more in a self-paced environment. And part of the function of the course is to lead them through learning about behavioral science. But at the end, they present a project where they have made an influence or an improvement in a work-related behavior, like where they work. So the outcomes are really obvious. It's like I was trying to help people to wear their PPE gear, their protective gear, when they weren't. And look, they weren't during baseline, and now they're 100% better after I use behavioral science. So like, that's just one example, but there've been thousands and thousands of different targets for projects that people have focused on. Um, the cost of the course is uh, $2,000. 
and we tend to run it in cohorts. So I'd like to talk more about that if we get a chance. Tell us about it now. Yeah, okay. So what I had hoped was <laughs> I would develop an online course and then individuals would see how great it is and they would come and buy it. And I'd have lots of different people from lots of different companies knocking on my door all the time. And that's not exactly the way that it turned out. What I discovered was, yeah, there's a, there's a bit of a market for that. But really, the market for me has been, the success has been through connecting with people who are executives or you know, senior leaders in organizations that need this content and this, this learning and these techniques. And then you know, talking with them about how we can best serve them so that I can offer a cohort to 15 of their people, for example. So from a sales perspective, it's much simpler because it's like one person for a bigger price tag. And as opposed to many people for smaller price tags, if that makes sense. Something I was thinking about from the beginning, John, is you have this whole focus on behavioral science in terms of how you help your clients. I was curious if you could talk about how that perspective has informed your design of the course and and how you support people going through it and and help them be successful. Like what, what have been, what have you found to be the most effective techniques for behavioral science in terms of learning essentially? I was hoping you'd ask something about that, Abe, so that we could geek out a little bit because I'd love to hear your thoughts on it too. I don't have a degree in instructional design. There are people who, like yourself, who do that work, right? And like who are studied in instructional design. My degree is not in that per se, but I have been kind of a student of it over the years. I guess like some of the most effective, probably the most effective concept is that of consequences for me. And I guess I'd add to that clear expectations. So it's really easy to set clear expectations, I think. It's much harder to provide consequences for completing it and like following the rules of the course and completing the lessons and all that sort of thing. So one way that we do this, or I do this in my courses that are cohort, well, I guess I do it no matter if it's a cohort inside of a business or if it's a public course, but people get feedback on their course completion and it's not individualized. It's to the group. So like, especially when I teach hybrid courses, like I'm doing one right now where, you know, I, uh, they complete all the, most of the homework online and I have uh, some coaching back and forth by email on their homework completion on their assignments. But then when we meet face to face, I put up a list of the people and the assignments they completed. And I call that the green sheet. (laughs) They don't always like it, but in every case, you know, if I give the group and I've done this actually before I give the group a choice between getting group feedback. So like, okay, as a group, you got 70% great job, you know, 70% completed versus individualized feedback, which is like, here are all your names and here are the specific assignments you completed or didn't complete. And that as a whole, that's 70%. Most groups will say the individualized feedback is more effective, but they'll also say they would choose the group feedback (laughs) because it feels better. So which direction have you gone in? In most cases at this point, I don't even give them the choice. I just kind of experimented with that. So I, I just give them individual feedback because it's just, it serves them better, I think. That's what you mean by consequences that whatever they do or don't do, they're going to hear from you about it, essentially. Yes. Yeah. For every lesson they hear from me or someone, if I have a coach working for me. And, you know, if we do hybrid, they also hear about it face to face in terms of the green sheet. John, I want to build on that a little bit because 
you have a pretty interesting and, and somewhat unique configuration of things going on here, right? You are an expert in behavioral science and essentially designing for behavior change. You've been delivering this course for you know quite a few years now. So I'm curious, what changes have you made to the course over the few years in response to challenges that may have arisen or you know people weren't moving forward at the pace that you wanted? Like what were some of the hypotheses you had of, oh, I think I, you know, I have this problem so I could try that and this has worked really well. What were some of those adaptations? Well, the green sheet is one. I've experimented with that quite a bit. And there are other caveats on that too, like who else do you share it with? So like if you're in a business environment, if it's the right environment, it's really successful to share it with their direct supervisors as well so that you are creating a supportive environment for them. In the wrong environment, it creates a highly aversive environment when you share it with their direct supervisor. So like there's that um, and there, there are tons of little kind of AB design type experiments you can do and we have done on those. But I guess the other big one that comes to mind is simplifying the material and cutting down on the amount of the length of any videos, the amount of homework, and the number of assignments. So I'd much rather at this point have shorter, you know, frequent but shorter assignments. So on the order of minutes, as opposed to, you know, something that might take longer, like reading a book or something like that. Very cool. And you mentioned that, you know, an intervention like the green sheet can be very effective in certain contexts, but can also be very destructive in certain contexts. How do you gauge that and decide whether to do it? Do you, you know, I've heard comedians say that when they get on stage, they'll open with a really abrasive joke because the audience reaction kind of tells them which way to go with the rest of their set. Do you do something like that to kind of gauge, okay, which implementation of my course is this going to be? Uh, I wish I was that skilled <laughs> to do that, um, you know, to have the brown M&Ms. Is it the brown or blue M&Ms kind of test, right? That's the million-dollar question. Um, I think from, for me, it is less regimented. And so that there isn't one phrase or one turn of question or anything like that that I'd ask. But I do carefully observe and I do have conversations with people who are going to get the green sheet. If I've never met them, I'm less likely to share it, I think, because I, I really want to know how they're likely to react. And so usually what I do in terms of implementation and deployment of this, the direct supervisors, the senior leaders really should have the course first. And if they don't have the course, they have an overview of the course. So I'm going to teach them how they should respond to it. And I'm going to remind them that this is all just pretty arbitrary, right? Like we're creating the assignments. We're creating an environment in which they can experiment and learn and practice some of this stuff. So they'll get a chance to respond well or poorly <laughs> when I send them things. And guess what? Their people are going to tell me when I'm in the course with them too, because I'll ask them anonymous polling questions, for example, and ask how my boss responded to the feedback, or if my boss even talked to me about it. And so I'll be able to give the direct supervisor feedback as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think that's really instructive for everyone who's listening. Thank you. What are those clients looking for, ultimately, in terms of the outcomes that you help them get to? Like, are they, are they asking you to demonstrate certain metrics or changes in the performance around safety? Like, what is the, the sort of ultimate outcome? Yeah, good question. Um, in, in the area of safety, it's easy to target a, a specific outcome, and that's just like reducing injuries, 
right? That's a measurable thing by law. You, you need to measure any, any incidents or injuries that resulted in medical care. So what I do and have done from the beginning really is, is to build in that course project to show and like demonstrate. I mean, the real point is that the student learns to use what I'm teaching and demonstrates they can use it, right? So it's real practice. It's a practice technique, a uh, mastery technique. But for leaders, someone who controls a budget, if they want to see an outcome, I can, I can say you're going to see 15 outcomes and nine out of 10 of them will produce a you know, measurable and large improvement in whatever they target. And then I'll give them lots of examples of the things that they target. But they're almost always upstream from injuries, like from the ultimate outcome that we're looking for. Right. And that's the same in my leadership course as well. If it's not focused on safety, it might be focused on leadership. But it's like the leader in the course chooses a particular result to focus on. And I coach them to find something they can change within four to six weeks. So it's simple, it's small, and it's measurable, and they can show improvement. How did you find those 15 upstream contributing factors? Because that seems like the really key insight there. That's a really good question. And it's not me. I think it would be impossible to program it because it's different for every organization. In fact, one of my former students who now uh, works for OHSU in, in Portland, Oregon Health and Science University, he works with truckers, long haul truckers, and gotten these great federal grants to improve the health and safety of, of truck drivers. One of the things that he found in his studies and published was that when you give people a choice, it increases engagement by 20%. And so I built choice in all over the place, right? Like you're going to get to choose along the way to create your own experience. That's all I got. I thought that was fascinating. Thank you, John. Yeah, sure. Abe, do you want to do the readout? Yes. Dr. John Austin is a behavioral psychologist with over 25 years of experience in his field. You can learn more about his course and about behavioral science at reachingresults.com. That's reachingresults.com. Well, it's good talking to you guys. Take care. Now stick around for my favorite part of the show, where Abe and I will pull out the best takeaways for you to apply to your course. Abe, what jumped out to you? Wow, okay. So, I mean, John is a, a real expert, as you can tell, so... I felt like we could have talked, you know, for hours with him about applications of behavioral science to his course. But I guess let's start with the biggest thing that he really emphasized, which was the importance of like getting people to apply his techniques and to take action. And he takes this especially seriously because his courses are about safety and they, you know, affect injuries and, and potentially even lives are at stake. So he, there's really a kind of a heightened sense of motivation for him to, to make his courses work. I found it really interesting the emphasis that he placed on like giving people a clear sense of consequences, right? That like the actions that you take based on what you learn in the course matter. And it's it's not just, hey, here's some information and good luck with it. Or even, hey, here's some information and you can come ask questions if you have questions. No, it's we're expecting you to move forward and apply this to create a better safety environment in your workplace. And if we're not seeing you taking some action or making some progress, then that's concerning and we need to follow up with you. Yeah, I thought it was, I mean, really interesting in that this is the predicament of most people who are creating premium courses around their expertise. 
which is they're not really teaching about the subject matter. It's not like a college course where, oh yeah, that's interesting. I'll write some notes. I'll learn some stuff. I'll maybe sound, you know, smart at a cocktail party, right? It's teaching people to do things. And that involves, yes, some transfer of knowledge, but also the development of skill to some degree and especially behavior change. And behavior change is hard, right? You know, as he said, we all know the right thing to do in a whole bunch of areas, the right thing by our own judgment, and yet we don't do them. And so behavior change is a lot harder. And and I thought the emphasis on expectations and consequences, and also, you know, he really emphasized that ideally you want the consequences to be positive for compliance rather than negative for lack of compliance. So you know, the green sheet does a little bit of both of those things, right? It gives some of that social pressure. And yes, there's a little bit of consequences if your boss sees that you're not doing the work. But the focus on adding positive consequences for having done this, of seeing the effects of reducing injuries, et cetera, I think that's really powerful. Right. It kind of highlights the distinction between meaningful consequences that are tied to real world results aligned with, with John's brand, as opposed to some of what we sometimes criticize around the concept of gamification, which is is not entirely bad, but I think gamification can go off the rails when it tries to motivate people through consequences that are essentially imaginary, right? As opposed to ones that, that really matter in the area of life or work that the course is trying to help with. I think the fact that John is so focused on actually changing behavior also leads to the insight that I think is really important for a lot of course creators, which is that, you know, when we asked how his program has evolved over time, often people are like, oh, I'll add this, I'll add that. And he was saying it actually got simpler, right? It's the the addition by subtraction. Let's simplify the materials. Let's make it easier to consume. Let's shorten the videos. Because the shorter that gap from I'm starting the material to I'm ending it, the easier it is to get to implementation, which is really the point of all this. Yeah, that's been exactly my experience in the past, that whenever we ran programs and and collected feedback from people, less in the direction of trying to simplify things and uh, remove complexity and reduce the number of directions people felt pulled into. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that was interesting, I thought, was it had a pretty sophisticated like model of how his course is going to have real world impact. So like we often talk at kind of a high level of like, oh, like we want our courses to, you know, lead to great outcomes for our participants. And then a slightly more detailed version of that is like, okay, let's, you know, actually detail out what are the outcomes, right? Like, can you write them down? Can we describe them? Can they be quantified in some way? But what John highlighted is there's not necessarily this obvious direct link from what you can guide people through in the course to having that lead to an immediate improvement in those measurable outcomes. They may be mediated by a a number of practices or behaviors, things that have to change in order to move the needle on the outcomes. And he talked about finding kind of 15, you know, factors upstream of the ultimate improvements of safety. and, And it's, getting people to make progress on those 15 factors over time, that that's what eventually moves the needle. Starting to think about, okay, what's in between, you know, your course and the ultimate outcomes? What What's upstream of those outcomes? I think could be a really helpful framework for a lot of course creators. 
Yeah, that also ties to the need for good prospect and customer education, right? Because the people buying the course have to understand that, which really kind of doubles down on the idea that, especially in a B2B context, you're much better off whenever possible selling to the manager who then has, you know, 15 people go through it than trying to sell one on, I'll have one person from this organization, one person from that organization. Not only does it not lead to the behavior change that you're looking for across an organization, but business model wise, you're, you're kind of introducing all the challenges of a B2B sale without any of the upside of the large dollar volume. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, that's all I've got. You want to do the readout? Yes. Thank you for listening to Course Lab. I'm Abe Crystal, co-founder and CEO of Rizuku, here with Dan Eni, founder and CEO of Miracy. Course Lab is part of the Miracy FM network, which also includes Just Between Coaches and Making It. This episode of Course Lab was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Jeff Govertson assembled the episode. Dan Eni is our executive producer. Another thanks to Dr. John Austin for taking the time to discuss his course offerings. You can find out more about him at reachingresults.com. That's reachingresults.com. To make sure you don't miss the really great episodes coming up on Course Lab, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you like the show, please leave us a starred review. It's the best way to help us get these ideas to more people. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. So we seem to have lost Cynthia and Jeff. <laughs> I noticed that. <laughs> All right, I think we should probably be able to hop off. All right, I am double crossing my fingers. Okay, good luck. <laughs> Thanks. All right, are you ready? Wait, what's my cue? It's a behind the scenes kind of thing. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Just Between Coaches, the podcast that tackles difficult coaching conversations head on. I'm Melinda Cohen, and your host for this show. I also know that I'm listening when, again, my mind is relaxed. So I can almost sense that I'm listening on multiple levels. That's a great frame. That's a, that's a really great way to think about it. Um, I think so, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, because I think that something that is very dangerous is for people to think that being a great coach comes from having the credentials. One has nothing to do with the other. So again, part of it is just, you know, either through questions or asking what they've tried, or sometimes it's, you know, the forest for the trees thing. My favorite part of having the hard conversation is... Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, so while I love what's on the other side, I think navigating through that conversation is my favorite part. Yeah, because we're not there necessarily as coaches to provide solutions. We're there to guide our people towards solutions. And I don't know if it's, you know, societal pressure or peer pressure, but we don't want to look like we don't know what we're doing. I want to help and support coaches so that they can evolve into their greatness.
my desire for the show is if I could scoop up all of the coaches and bring them into my living room and bring up the topics that leave crinkles in our forehead so that we can fully understand what it means to show up in our greatness fully confident so that we can build better businesses, so that we can be better coaches, so that we can make a lasting impact on this world collectively. And we want to rise to that level. That being said, you do want to set yourself up and your clients up for success by making sure that there is clarity around their expectations and your expectations as to how you can help them. People have to know a little bit about what you offer. Otherwise, how do they know that they need what you can help them with in terms of that transformation? And I love having the conversations and navigating the topics that keep us at the forefront in a time with what I call the results revolution. Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to start by saying that this is a really good problem to have, right? So if you have someone who's resisting your price, it means they're really interested in working with you. The thing is, sometimes it becomes negative. It becomes toxic. I've been in the coaching industry for almost 20 years now. And over these years, I have seen everything behind the scenes in our industry, everything that works, everything that doesn't work. I've seen the evolution of our industry and of what it means to be a coach. I just want to say to all the coaches out there, you know, matching who you are to the kind of coach that you want to be is just a practice. Do you want to add some parting words? No, I think you did great. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. This is Melinda Cohen, and you've been listening to Just Between Coaches. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, this is absolutely the tone, the feel, the everything. Okay, so I'm going to stop the recording now. Why are you stopping the recording? This is going to be fun. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's a wrap. That is going to be an amazing session.